Tonight, the message is on the world's first globalist. The world's first globalist. This author here, his name is Klaus Schwab. It's hard for me to say that. Klaus Schwab. He lays out a plan of governance, global governance, by the year 2030. Well, 2030, by my calculation, is only now less than nine years ahead of us at this time. He says we must establish his term, global governance, by 2030. Here I read in his own words, he talks about the problems economically, climate change, and all those kinds of things. And then he talks about the solution. He says this will only come about through improved global governance, the most natural and effective mitigating factor against these protectionist tendencies. And he said there cannot be a lasting recovery from the problems brought on by COVID. There cannot be a lasting recovery without a global strategic framework of governance. That sounds like diplomatic speak, doesn't it? Global governance is commonly defined, he's going to tell you what it is, but not in plain language. It's defined as the process of cooperation among transnational actors aimed at providing responses to global problems. What that means in PD is that global government can come about only between cooperation of the nations of the earth. And he is a strong proponent of globalism. Now, he is the founder and the president of the World Economic Forum, which is a very, very prestigious, I guess we would call them a think tank. They meet together about 3,000 people every year in Davos, Switzerland. I think they're about to meet right away. It's end of January, 1st of February. They will meet there in that very beautiful resort town, and they'll come from all over the world, politicians, billionaires, CEOs, academics, business and financial leaders. They will come from all over. Many entertainers, some of the biggest name entertainers will come there. And they will lay out their plans for the solution of the problems that they see around the world. They're very prestigious. They have lots of degrees, lots of uh, man's wisdom. And they meet there and they come up with these papers and ideas, and then the media visits them and propagates it all over the world. The mainstream media, they're really the darlings of the mainstream media. They believe that the solution to the problems of the world tonight are, or is global governance, a vision of a one world, but a one world socialist state. And they've even set a date for it, nine years up the road in 2030. Last week, I showed you a video that they put out. The video uh, had eight points, eight things that they're trying to achieve. I won't show the video again. 
If you want to see the video, it's on the World Economic Forum website. It's right there for everybody to see. To me, the most chilling point is the first point where they say openly and clearly, by 2030, you will own nothing, but you will be happy. You will own nothing, but you will be happy. In other words, they're saying we're going to change, we're going to reset the world's economies, and we don't want anybody to have private property anymore. That's not just an inference. That's what they're saying there clearly. They say also that the United States will no longer be a superpower, that there'll be several leading nations of the world, principally China, along with the United States, who will be global leaders. Now, in the book, the author makes no, uh, he pulls no punches. He says that COVID has provided them an opportunity to lay the groundwork for this vision. That He admits that they used COVID to camouflage their efforts to manipulate events of our times and to achieve this globalist vision here in the next few years. A few years ago, I would have read that book, and I'd probably quit on about page 5 or 10 because I would have said, well, that can't be done, and if it's done, it would be done over hundreds of years. But if we've seen anything at all this year, we've seen how quickly this can all change. I used to wonder how long will it take these trends to set in where the Antichrist comes to power with his one-world government. And I thought it would take decades and decades and decades. But this year we have seen massive change in so many different areas, massive change, and we've seen it happen very, very quickly. I'll illustrate it. I remember when they first announced in March on the 13th or 14th of March, the government announced that this was now officially a pandemic. And they used, in my opinion, uh, hyperbole. They hyped the whole thing dramatically. And so I know how the country went into overdrive, and we, we sent two ships to New York. And uh, we equipped them, and uh, 15 or 20 people used them. We said, we've got to have 40,000 respirators in New York. And uh, the president got on all these companies, and even Ford Motor Company was making respirators. And now we've got 40,000 respirators, most of which were never used in New York. We... We sent the National Guard to retool and re-equip the Javits Center, the big downtown convention center in the heart of New York. We provided 2,000 beds in a hospital, and I think they used something under 100 of those beds. And I saw that the nation went into an absolute fear-driven panic, and it happened almost overnight. Governors began to crack down on, in, the, in their various states. 
and uh, really assaulted the rights of people. Businesses were forced to close. So many people have been unemployed this year. There's something like 40 million people right now unemployed in the United States. I watched a man the other night in desperation. I worked like a slave. I took all of my savings, all the money I could buy or borrow. I put it into my restaurant business, and now they've shut me down. And if I don't open, I'll be bankrupt and out of business. I'll never be able to open again. And that's happened over and over and over. In many states, gathering for worship like we're doing tonight is not allowed even this far into the pandemic. We have a sister church in California who said, we're going to stay open. And right now, every time they meet, they're fined $5,000. They owe the state of California in fines something like $210,000. They said, we're going to meet. We can't have a church if we don't gather. And so we've seen this rush, this panic, if you will. And we, and we know now that it hasn't done any good. The states with the strictest laws, their cases of COVID are just as high as they are in our state. The one thing it's made me do is to be very, very thankful that I live in the state of South Carolina. Have you thanked the Lord for that? You know, we probably have more freedom than just about anywhere I know, maybe South Carolina and Texas and Florida. Thank God that we still have a, a proportion of people who believe that the church is more essential than the strip clubs and the bars. We believe that the church is necessary to an orderly society, and we're not going to let our fears keep us home. We are going to, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to take all the precautions but we're going to also try to keep our businesses open and keep our people fed and keep our people healthy spiritually. Now, the predictions are that the vaccine will be also a means of control. And so many people predict that if you haven't had the vaccine, you will not be permitted in the future to travel on airplanes, that you'll not be able to be employed I know of several employers in our area that are saying you have, to be, you have to be vaccinated to be able to have a job, to go to school, to go to a college. And so it seems like everything right now is pushed by the government of our country and by these other forces is, is squeezing us and controlling us taking away our God-given natural rights, our constitutional rights. COVID has been used to camouflage governmental efforts to control our lives. Well, where does that kind of thinking come from? It's not new, I'll tell you that. It started all the way back in the first pages of your Bible. Turn with me, if you will, tonight, and let's talk for a few minutes about the world's first globalist, the world's first globalist. 
you'll find him introduced in the book of Genesis, chapter number 10. Genesis chapter number 10. The flood was over, the waters assuaged and dried up. So Noah's sons spread out across the face of the world. And several generations passed. Men multiplied upon the earth again. One of the um, great commentators did a lot of calculation. He thought that there was something like 30,000 people that were sprinkled around. And then in the midst of that, we come to chapter 10 and verse 8. Go back there with me, please. And we'll read about a man, Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Three times it says he was a mighty one. It says it again in verse 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Babel. And so we see the world's very first globalist, this man named Nimrod. Well, his name is very significant. Nimrod means rebel. It means let us revolt or let us rebel. And Nimrod was one of the world's first rebels, if you will. He is described here in verse 8 and 9 as a mighty one. So he's one of the most influential men upon the earth in those days. There is outside evidence, extra biblical evidence, that Nimrod actually existed. If you have taken a freshman English course at many colleges, you were introduced to the epic poem of Gilgamesh. And in that poem, his name is mentioned. He's called Nimrud there. But that poem was found in the ruins of ancient Babylon, or pardon me, ancient Nineveh. And so there's even extra biblical evidence that this man, Nimrod, existed. And we see that he founded a city. Verse number 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He founded this city, which later is called in the Bible Babylon most of the time. It was only called Babel for a short period of time, apparently. Now, Babylon is the second most frequently mentioned city name in the entire Bible. It's in the Bible, uh, I think, over 200 times. The only city that is named more frequently than Babylon, of course, is Jerusalem in the Bible. Nimrod founded Babylon, or Babel as we call it here. In verse 9, it says he was a great hunter. Now, the original language on that, I'm told by all the scholars, means that he, was, he could have been a hunter of animals or he was a hunter of men. In either case, he sought to enslave, whether it was animals or whether it was men, he sought to enslave them by force to capture them, to control them by tyranny. The most famous of all the Jewish historians is a man named Josephus. Every Jew revered Josephus because his writings were so accurate. He's the most respected Jewish historian of the ancient times. He wrote about Nimrod, and here's what he says, quote, he led people to look to the state 
rather than to God for their security. He persuaded them not to ascribe their security and happiness to God as if it was through his means, the building of a state or government, that they were to be happy. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power, the power of the state. So Josephus wrote about this man. He says his whole goal in life was to create a nation state and then a global empire in which men would depend upon the state for their well-being, for their security, for their needs, even for their religion. They would look to the state and In doing this, he would turn their attention away from God because Nimrod was the enemy of Almighty God. And if you think about it, that's what's happening in our world, that the state has become omni. The state is everything. People look to the state for welfare. People look to the state for their food. People look to the state in America today for housing. They even look to the state for cell phones. We are becoming more and more and more dependent upon the state. Instead of looking to God for our needs, we look to government for our needs. Government has become all-powerful in our lives. And somebody called it the almighty state. And, and that's certainly an, an accurate name for it. Now, Nimrod here became so powerful that later on in Babylon, they worshipped him as their chief god. They called him Marduk. The god's name was Marduk, but he was the chief god of the Babylonians. So he became god in the eyes of the people and later, of course, was worshipped for centuries. Now, as you read your Bible, particularly your Old Testament, every single reference to Babylon has a negative connotation. You never see anything good said about Babylon. Babylon is always the personification of evil. And the very first reference to Babylon is right here in Genesis 10 and 11. And and then you go to the last reference regarding Babylon in your Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And we see the very climax of history there. And what do we see? We see Babylon is the central place, the central figure at the climax of human history. And so the first globalist is this man named Nimrod. Now, note with me, secondly, the first globalist experiment. And we will go to chapter 11 for that, the first globalist experiment. And it's, of course, the building of the Tower of Babel. Verse 1, the whole earth was of one language at that time. And it was of one speech. Everybody could understand everyone. It came to pass as people journeyed from the east, migrations is what that's describing, as, as groups of people migrated from the east, They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, 
let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower, a city and a tower. Now remember this, that from the very beginning, God had commanded people to scatter across the world. Turn backward in your Bible there to chapter number 8. Well, actually, you could turn to Genesis 1. You don't need to turn there. You already know this. But what was God's first command to mankind? It was to scatter across the earth, to replenish the earth, to multiply and fill the earth with people who had the image of God stamped upon them. God wanted to fill the entire earth with his image bearers. Well, the flood comes along and, and destroys most of mankind, all of it but one family. But now when they get off of the ark and they begin to replenish the earth again, note what God says, chapter 8 and verse number 17. God said to them, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. What is God's command? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, which means to fill up the earth, repopulate the earth with people. This is after the flood, of course. If you will look with me also in chapter 9 and verse 1, God repeats that. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Fill up the earth, repopulate the earth. He gave the command twice. Now we come over to Genesis chapter 11, and we have these people under the leadership of the great hunter of men and souls, Nimrod, the world's first globalist, the world's first dictator. And what does he do? He says, we're not going to do what God said. We're not going to scatter and replenish the earth. We're going to bring everybody together, and we're going to put them in one city, and we're going to build a city and a tower. A city represents a political goal, to build a city, to, li to, to gather people to live in one place and to live there in disobedience, in fact, to the Word of God because God clearly twice commanded them to scatter. Now, the reason for that, that he was able to pull that off probably is that people were very concerned at this point in history after the flood. There probably was a lot of fear. What is going to happen in the future? Probably wild animals roamed the earth that they have been multiplying now for these, uh, this period of time, this relatively long period of time since the flood had occurred. And people needed to band together for uh, safety and for security. And you know what? We have sure found that out in our day that the greatest number of people would far rather have security than they would to have freedom. We're seeing that today in America. People would far, far rather know that they're safe than that they are free. And so that is a part of the, the human experience. We've been seeing that throughout the COVID thing. And so his goal, bring the people together and build a great, great city called Babel. And then it was a religious goal. 
He said, let's build a tower up to heaven in verse number 4 of chapter 11. The tower, there's, the archaeologists have discovered a lot of these things, and we know from ancient history there's drawings of them and so on that's still in the museums of the world. These towers were called ziggurats, ziggurats, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. And what they would do is they would build a great platform, a great structure out of brick. And then, like a wedding cake, they would build another structure on the next level, would be a little smaller, and then a, a little smaller. And it would have seven, eight, ten layers, each layer getting smaller than the previous one. And then at the top, there would be a tower. And on top of the tower, there usually was a zodiac. And they would go up this tower and... They believed that if they, they believed if they built this structure high enough that it would connect heaven and the earth, that there would be a connection literally with the deities if you could get high enough in the, in the tower. And so they would go up to the top of the tower and they would worship. But they didn't worship God. Nimrod was the first one to introduce paganism into the world. Paganism, the worship of nature itself, the worship of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. And they believed that each of those bodies, those celestial bodies, had a God that governed it. And so they would pray to those gods and they would worship those gods. Really, it was the birthplace of astrology and of the dark arts because they were not worshiping God. They were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping, in fact, demonic spirits. And so you have a political leader who is the leader of a world religion at that time. He combined, if you will, the church and the state. And there's a third motivation that he had, he had a political goal to build a city. He had a religious goal to build a tower. And then he also had one other goal in mind. Let's read in verse 4. Let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven or into the heavens. And let us make us a name. And so he had a political goal. He had a religious goal. And he had a goal, an ego goal, if you will. He had a goal of pride. He wanted to make a name for himself. And in verse 5, we see the Almighty's response. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So what's the Lord's response? Well, first of all, back there in verse number 5, the Lord came down to see. The Lord came down to see. The Lord was observing what was happening here on the earth as the Lord is observing today what's happening on the earth. There's a wonderful verse that goes along with this in Amos chapter 9. In verse 8, you almost never hear it quoted. But listen to this verse, Amos 9, 8. The eyes of the Lord 
are on the sinful kingdoms. And I will destroy it from off the earth. Don't think that God doesn't know what's happening in the kingdoms of men. The eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. And God said, we'll go down there and we'll we'll deal with this situation where they have despised me and my command. Proverbs 15 and 23 is another verse. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. The omnipresence of God, that nothing that is done upon the earth is out of the sight of Almighty God. And so the Lord came down verse number 5, to see the tower and the city. And notice verse 6 is significant. The people are one and nothing will be restrained from them that they've imagined. God here is describing something about human nature, a peculiarity of human nature. What is the peculiarity? That when large numbers of people get together, there is an unlimited potential for evil. Now, you would think, you might say, well, there's also an unlimited potential for good. Perhaps. But understand that man has fallen. And usually, people have not gotten together in these great concaves, and out of it came something real positive. Usually, it's been a consensus to do wrong, to do the evil. The unlimited potential of man to do evil when unified in large, large numbers. If you don't think that's true, just look at America today. Where do you have the highest crime areas? Where do you have the drugs and the prostitution? Where do you have the trafficking? Where do you have the gangs and the murders? Generally speaking, you don't have those in rural areas. You don't have them where there's not a high concentration of people. When you concentrate people with fallen natures, you get what you would suppose. You get an ability for great, great sin, great, great evil. And in verse 7, God intervened. Go to let us The whole trinity is involved in this council. Let us go down there and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So God comes down and he confounds, he confuses the language. Can you imagine it in your mind that here's two neighbors and they've known each other and lived side by side on the streets of babble for a few years and one of them walks out to say hello to the neighbor and uh, can't say hello. He says a a different language, a different tongue. They try to converse and I'm sure one of them looked at the other and said, what's wrong with him? And the other one looked back and said, and what's wrong with him? Because suddenly now they can't understand each other's speech. That was totally a supernatural thing. God did that. There's no human explanation for that. And so then what happened? People began to group with the people that spoke 
their common language. And they moved to various parts of the area, and then they went further and further as populations grew. A family became a tribe. A tribe became a community. A community became a nation. All of that determined by the languages that they spoke. It's been like that ever since. God solved the problem of this mass of humanity imagining evil against him right after the flood. And it's been that way since. Different people have spoken different languages. The name of the town or the name of the city was Babel. Here's a big word in the English language. I'll try to impress you here. Onomatopoeia or onomatopoeia. It's, it describes a word that the word carries the actual sound of the thing described. For example, we look at a clock, an old-fashioned grandfather's clock, and we say, what's that sound? And you say, tick-tock. Well, see, you have used a word that describes the sound of the clock. So we say, I looked at a hamburger, a steak, sizzling on the grill. And the word sizzling is the sound of the thing that we're describing. That's what Babel is. Babel is that same type word. It describes the confusion that people had, the Babel that came up from that city that day when everybody was speaking a different language and no one could understand each other. Babel is what we hear when we walk into a crowded room and everybody's talking and it's just a bunch of sounds and noises that we can't, we can't understand them. And we say there's a babble in that room. Just a lot of noise from voices. And the city was called that, became known as that. The city, the confusion of tongues when God separated people by their languages. And so the roots of the idea of a great reset, a globalist state to rule over the entire earth and solve its problems, the roots of that started right here, Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis 11. Nimrod, the first globalist. The idea of global governance, he didn't use that term, but that idea to ignore what God told people to scatter across the world and replenish the earth, to act in defiance of God's plan for man, goes all the way back and it has its roots here. There have been many other globalist attempts in history, and some of them I'll describe in the next message or two. Every one of them ended in disaster and ended in confusion, just like this one. But we also know our Bibles. And so we know that the Bible clearly teaches and prophesies that at the very end of time, in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, there's the beginning of a new world order led by one called the beast in the Bible. 
And the biblical beast is also known as the Antichrist. And we know that he will bring together the nations of the earth, that there will be a time of global governance. This would be at the midpoint of the tribulation period that you find described in the, the book of Revelation. And every time that I read a book or I hear a news report or I hear a politician speaking about we've got to create a global village, a new world order, a global society, and all that stuff. When you hear those terms as a Christian, your ears need to perk up. Because if and when that happens, there will be a fulfillment of a prophecy of a very terrible time in the world's history. Now, today, many of the world's most powerful people are heading in that direction. Many of the people, particularly on the left in the United States, the hard left, they don't want the United States to continue to exist. They want a global government. They believe that without that, climate change is going to destroy the planet. They believe that without that, wars will continue on. There's no hope for peace. They believe that the world's financial system is in so much debt, so much trouble that if we don't reset everything financially, that there's no hope of ever having prosperity again. And so they're very committed to that goal. They're probably, in most cases, well-meaning people. They just don't know the Word of God. And because of that, they're ignorant of the real plan of God for the ages. Will these people succeed? I don't know. I'm not going to lay awake about it. Will they actually achieve their goal by 2030? I have no way of knowing that. I do know that there are very, very powerful people involved in this. World leaders. I know that, all the, I know that Bill Gates is a leader in this movement. I know that Zuckerberg and Dorsey and all of them have those same sympathies. I know that this has been pushed in the United States going back to Henry Kissinger. And so I know that there are very powerful people behind this. Will they succeed? I don't know. But I know this. I'm, I know that Christians need to know what's happening. They ought to be able to take their Bible and put it in one hand and look at these things that are happening and put that in the other hand. And they ought to say, you know what? I know where we are, sort of, or at least to some degree, because God's Word is very clear about where this is all headed. And we've seen a tumultuous week in our nation's history. And the only thing that I've had people tell me, what do you think we can do? We can repent of our sins and make sure that our hearts are pure before God. And we can pray. I hope you will pray for our country. My, it was such a terrible thing, people doing what they did at the Capitol. 
you just don't even know how to hardly talk about what is happening in the country. But we can talk to the Lord for our country. We're God's people. Please pray for your nation this week. Pray with a burden. Pray with pray with a with a broken heart. Pray for America tonight. Stand to your feet with me in prayer.